Welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm Amanda Solar, host and creator of the podcast and SoulfulLiving.com. This is the place people will connect you to their stories, their journeys, and how they've found meaning in their lives. Join us. Let's connect. Connection. Okay, so I am here with Jim Hur, and Jim and I went to high school together, full disclosure. Ten years um, ago. Right, just like a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> just graduated. And um, and I know I want to ask you, Jim, you know, kind of the road since high school. I, I, I'm always curious about that, but I have to ask you something else first because I'm so super intrigued by what is on your arm what is that tattoo oh, this is my tattoo it's, oh my gosh i that's beautiful so um it actually started when one of my dogs passed away my the first dog i had as an adult and we were just talking about dogs and you know yes <laughs> Yes. They are such special, wonderful creatures, and he was the best. And so I was really torn up when he passed and wanted to memorialize him in some way. And so I got this tattoo. And as as they often say, like, once you get one, it just starts to grow magically and uh, have a incredible tattoo artist who you might want to talk to at some point, who I've been friends with for over 20 years never knew that he was like never knew that he was even interested in art let alone tattooing and and not alone not even knowing how freaking good he is like he is amazing like just an amazing artist and i think a lot of people kind of poo poo tattoos but like when you think about having to like draw somebody's face on something that's not a flat piece of paper or canvas that's like yeah. really hard that's really true so he's just amazing so he gave me the first tattoo and then it kind of grew from there and I knew I wanted something kind of to celebrate my Filipino heritage and I left up to my own devices it would have just probably been a mess but he was like this is probably what you should do and we started talking through it all and came up with these tribal bands and each of the bands I don't know if you can see represent something different so like the land the air the wind um, oh my the, gosh the water. and I guess I should stand up for this it looks so, so cool so these two bands represent a mountain and the sun is setting the sun is I setting behind the and the sun is the sun from the Philippine flag and my mother's island is divided in two by mountain range and there's this point where it's all volcanic. These two volcanoes kind of come together and it's called Cuernos de, de Negros, the Horns of Negros. And so because they're on the east side of the, the island, the sun always sets behind the mountain. So that's that. And then this is an owl. An so, owl. Or temple owl. <laughs> oh, the temple it. owl. <laughs> and, you know, owls are, you know, they're symbols of wisdom. They're symbols of of power there this the body is in the shape and the form of a shield from um, indigenous philippine culture um and so it kind of just all magically came together with his brilliance it's beautiful did you do it all at once um i did the majority of this part all at once yeah so i was in the chair for like a good seven hours i mean that sounds like a lot of pain and it sounds like a lot of patience <laughs> he there? has patience i yeah. have very little patience but he's amazing i mean right. it's so much detail work um but you know it was the the 
it's that anticipation of the first time you you get a tattoo of just like wondering like what it's going to feel. And then when you feel it, you're like, oh, I can handle it, this. It's not so bad. And there were certain certain parts like on the the wrist that were yeah. really painful, but it it's just like momentary. Like it doesn't. It's not like it lasts forever and you know right I mean the pain, the, hopefully the tattoo lasts forever no I know what you're saying and you know it's not like pain where you're gonna die there's some bad outcome you know it's something that you want that's so interesting because um I I, I always tell my kids I'm from the culture or like I'm from like the era the generation that we don't always get tattoos we don't mm. always when I say get tattoos, I don't mean we don't get them. I mean, we don't get them. We don't mm -hmm. always understand it. So it's just so cool. And then I'm going to just dive right in because that kind of brings me to the fact that you have Filipino heritage, that you and I went to Lansdale Catholic High School. Mm -hmm. And I'm safe in saying, I believe that there was not a lot of uh, Filipino young children there <laughs> right? i think in our entire time there there were two of us um i was obviously mixed race um but there right. was a, another young young woman whose father was a doctor um who attended she was i think one or two years younger than us um, okay because i think you and i were a year apart i think you were no we were in the same class no we weren't because i graduated in 83 Oh my God, I thought we were in the same class. Uh -uh. But you know uh -huh. what it is? We were in the plays. So we were in the plays that together. That's where I know you So she might have been like a year younger than me, probably. Maybe. I mean, you know what? It's all weird. Like, it's four years. So you're all basically the same age once you get to a certain mm -hmm. point, you know? Mm -hmm. But we didn't... It was not a hugely multicultural school. It just wasn't. We were all mm -hmm. Catholic, so we wasn't mm -hmm. like diverse in the religion aspect um so can i just start before we get into where you are now in your journey mm -hmm. asking you full disclosure i'm always interested in multicultural um experiences because i am the mother of multicultural children mm -hmm. so i'm just always desperately curious like what did that feel like did it feel like anything and if so what Wow, that's a question. Um, so <laughs> it's the first like, one. <laughs> I feel I need to, to preface this with a disclaimer because I think I've had people take things I've said out of context. So let me just say this right up front. Like, I feel extremely, extremely blessed to have um, grown up in a time and a place where I did, where I, you know, felt safe, felt loved. My father's family was, you know, unbelievably welcoming to my mother. I, I've seen horror stories of other people's families who, you know, just disowned them once they brought somebody home, who, someone home who was different. And, and you know, I think I, I buy into the Pareto principle, like 80-20, like everything, you know, 80% of your trouble is, is caused by 20% of the people in your life. And what and principle is that? The, the Pareto principle? principle? Okay. Pareto. Um, I'm bastardizing it a little bit, but um, you know, there, I couldn't have I couldn't have asked for, you know, better friends, better experiences, but you know, there was that sort of twenty percent of my life that was very very difficult, um, and made so because of how different I was, and I realized though that we all had twenty percent. We all were dealing with something. Yeah. Um, and some it was very outward. Someone, you know, it was um, known, other people, it was, you know, you would have never known that they were dealing with some of the things that they were dealing with. Um, so, you know, I'm mindful that this isn't like the oppression Olympics, and I'm not trying to win a gold medal right. here. <laughs> I'm just trying no, to. And I do get what you're saying, but I do also feel like, just first of all, being a teenager, Mm -hmm. like is hard and mm -hmm. sometimes being a teenager it, it in the best of circumstances you know you're still dealing with your own understanding of yourself and the world in which you find yourself so I find that 
the notion of any kind of otherness is something that when you're younger feels like it might be harder to deal with yeah it's you stick out and you don't want to stick out when you're a kid um, you want to be like everybody else and and that was hard especially when you you look so much different and and my looks have changed over the years it's really kind of frustrating <laughs> because when I was a little kid I was like really little I, I you know I looked totally like my mom there were people who knew our family and still thought like I was a Vietnamese refugee that my father had adopted <laughs> in some way. I'm like, right. <laughs> um, and then I kind of grew out of it. And now I don't, I, you know, when I tell people I'm Filipino, they're like, what? <laughs> like, please. I know, um, and that's, that's its own kind of weird situation, honestly. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Because I have other, I have friends who are mixed. I have um, a, a whole side of my mom's family, one family, one group of the one unit of the family is mixed and you know they we would never necessarily think that they're Filipino you know they've just their looks have changed over time that's that's just the way it is um but yeah like growing up was was it was a mixed bag because you don't know you only know what you know so I just thought that that's the way it was and that's the way it was going to be and and then there's a lot of other stuff that went along with that um, and and understanding the difference um, and knowing that that I think that kind of made me put up a lot of, of walls and yeah. to protect myself, to protect my family. I, I learned at a very early age or I thought at a very early age that it was my job to protect my family from what people were saying about me. Um, I think that it impacted how the relationship that I have with my parents, because I would never share anything that was bad or was the things that I was going through, if I was being bullied or if, you know, the things, you know, the names people called me, I would never like say that to them. I would never tell them that I was in pain. Um, and that, Is that because you didn't want to worry them? Like, what was the reason that yeah. you didn't tell them? Is that why? So one of the first do you remember the Montgomeryville Mart? I don't know if you of course, uh, so. of course. And just for people who don't know, the Montgomeryville Mart was kind of this. Oh my gosh, Jim, how would you explain the Mart? It was part um, flea market, swap meet, um, farmers market. Like, yeah. it was a mall before there was a mall. Yeah. It was it was where you would go. <laughs> Weekends. it was where you would go but it had like a dirt floor it wasn't it was the opposite yeah. of fancy but then I remember sometimes the flat the Philadelphia Flyers would come and make an appearance there I mean it was just really hard to explain and you could get anything yes anything you, I remember we would go specifically because my dad would want to get hardware and they had yeah. every kind of piece of hardware they had we used to go to get hoagies there we got uh, sticky buns yeah like you know the, yeah. the Amish farmers would come with their yeah. baked goods and and so it was just this really interesting place but a place where my mom and I stood out and yes, I was very so. very very young and I and I actually like for a long time like was able to um, compartmentalize a lot of the my experiences so this was something I put aside and only came back to it in college and then you know over the course of, of therapy years later kind of understood what was going on but there were these two women that had said something about my parents and I was only like around four years old and I was just like I don't know I don't know what this means and normally when you're a kid if you don't know what something means you go and you ask your parents but there was just something about it that I felt like I couldn't ask my parents, like it was bad, like what they were saying was bad. And then they made a comment about my mother going back to where she came from, which is something we're revisiting again in the world today. Yes. Everything old is Sadly, new Sadly, yeah. And, and to me at four years old, being a mama's boy, that scared the crap out of me. And I knew I had been to the Philippines, so I knew that if she went back there, I would we wouldn't see her. We wouldn't talk to her. Oh, wow. That's so scary. And so it became this, I have to 
I have to protect the family. I, I can't do anything mm. that would make them send her, like as punishment for me would be to send her away. Yes. And, and so, you know, a lot of, of what I experienced, I had to keep compartmentalized to myself. And that probably became part of your um, cellular makeup in a sense. You probably almost didn't even articulate it sometimes as you were just growing up. It's because, you know, I know how things we process things because I actually was going to add, even before you said that, that the weird thing about the Mart was that there was an air of menace as well as an air of, uh, you know, folksiness to it. It was, it was weird. It was weird. And at that time you could, you could run around as a four-year-old. I could run around without my parents, you know, attached to me. Yeah. 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 So the other thing I will tell you from high school is that I mentioned that we were in plays together and that's why for some reason, Jim, you know, back then when we all got connected through Facebook, I just thought, oh, Jim is in California. He must be in, um, you know, the movies or in entertainment. I just immediately assumed that you would be in entertainment for some reason. But then you and I talked a little about, little bit about your journey. So can you kind of, share i know you're a very um you're a very smart person and i know you did well in high school so what happened after high school um so i went to temple and uh loved it um my parents wanted me to go to penn state um i did not want to go to penn state <laughs> no offense to my to our 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 nitty yeah. line fans and alum but i just the thought of going someplace even more rural and remote just did not appeal to me. Um, I wanted, you know, to be in a city. I wanted, I just wanted to be around different people. Um, yeah. I really wanted to go to Penn, but there was no way that that we could have afforded it. Yeah. Um, and so the sort of like the next logical choice was like LaSalle, Villanova, St. Joe's. And I just, I did not want to go to a Catholic university and so my parents were like well if you go to temple it's cheaper it's a state school you know you know this it will help you out we'll, we'll you know they let me go to europe that summer and stay with my cousin and so i i went to temple i probably didn't pick it for all the best reasons um but it was it ended up being the best place for me because i just i did everything you can imagine there i was there for 11 years um my parents said good to good get a good education. So I was like, well, I'm going to stay. Like, <laughs> then, then after the first round, they were like, yeah, okay, we're, we're moving to Florida. So they retired and moved to Florida. And I was like, okay, I'm going to stay here and stay in school forever. And um, that really only lasts for so long. And um, so after about 11 years, I started working uh, and, but really like wanted something different and got you know, when you're a kid, winter is phenomenal. It's the best thing. It's snow days. It's, but when you're an adult, it sucks. Like having to do I your car you. having to, you don't get snow days a lot of times as, as an adult. Um, I had been to California and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing out here. I think a lot of, do you hear a lot of stories of people coming to California and they, they literally don't leave. Like they just stay. Yeah. And if I could have done that, I probably would, but I had to to clean some stuff up. And so the first chance I had, I, I moved to California and I was like, I was in my thirties already and I was an idiot. Like I just was like, oh, I'm gonna move to California and everything's gonna be wonderful. And so yeah. I moved out there without, without a job, without a place to live. I didn't know, really know anybody, um, but I was just like, oh, I'm, it's gonna be wonderful. And it, and it wasn't, it sucked, <laughs> it, was, it was scary. <laughs> And right. but somebody was looking out for me. And so, and even in the hardest times, I knew that it was this is where I was supposed to be. Like this was like it wow. felt right. Um it brought it actually brought my parents and and me much closer together because you know it was for the first time I, I actually articulated to them that I felt like a failure, like that I was failing at something. Um and and that was really hard for me to do. Um, and I think, you know, but the way they reacted and how supportive they were, um, it, you know, it meant the world to me. And, 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 I'm, and I think they were still like, are you sure you don't want to move back? You sure you don't want to move to Florida? I'm like, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. 
And slowly, like, I think I had to go through that. I think like God or the universe was like, you need to like figure some, some stuff out and you need to appreciate stuff. Well, and that is the way we usually don't learn our most profound lessons from joyful, happy experiences. I mean, our real deep lessons, I feel like they come in that form, mm-hmm. you know, and it's almost like that humility that happens is um, like a really great breeding ground for learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's really brave. I think mm-hmm. it's really brave to move to California by yourself. And I also think it's really brave after a lifetime of kind of um not sharing those innermost feelings to your parents to actually share that. I think that that's a different, it's a different kind of bravery, but I still think it's brave, you know? So how did you, now you're at the Annenberg, are you at the Annenberg Foundation today or was that on the way? No, right. So tell me how you ended up there. Okay. So I, when I moved out to California, one of the things I thought was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I want to volunteer. I want to get involved in the community so I can learn about LA, so I can meet some people, maybe, maybe find a job, who knows. Um, and so I started getting involved with some community groups. I, it just wonderful happenstance that I, I got to, to work with some really great groups and was, you know, going, you know, from job to job, finally landed a job at, at Sony Pictures. And I wanted to work in entertainment in some way. Like I didn't think I could be in front of the camera, but I, I, I certainly was interested in the business of it. So this was like, I started out in accounting and I was like, okay, well, this is my in. And I started bugging the office that was involved with community, um, community outreach for like to help like with the clothing drive or a toy drive for these organizations I was working with. And at a certain point where they're like, well, we're, we're happy to help you, but you got to help us. And so they asked me to join the employee volunteer program. I started doing that. I was getting my MBA because I still loved school. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, we differ um, there, Jim. <laughs> I was in school for college for like 16 years, I think. Um, and, and was coming up to the end of the M- my MBA, really was marketing focused, thought that's where I was going to go. And then I saw this job description that was just like, all these things that I really loved. And I had already moved over to, to corporate development, which is like a motion picture finance. But I knew I kind of wasn't going to go in that direction. And But there was this job that was like working with the community, working with employees. And, and then I realized where this job was. And so I called down to that office and they, I said, you know, the woman who was the VP at the time, Janice Pober, who became this incredible you know, mentor and guide in my life. You know, I said, "Do you think she'd talk to me about this job?" And they said, oh, "Well, um, well, let me see, and we'll call you back." And like five minutes later, they they called back and said, "Can you come down and talk to her now?" And I'm like, "Sure." It was lunchtime, <laughs> so I went down, and we talked, and we talked for about forty five minutes. And she's like, "I think you'd be perfect. I'd love you to come work for me." I said, "I can't start for a month, and I need five weeks off at the end of the summer." <laughs> and she's <was> like. <laughs> Um, okay, we'll figure it out. And we did. And she kind of let me loose um, in this world that I never knew existed of, of corporate philanthropy, of philanthropy in general, and um, let me grow our programs. We, you know, huge grew our programs a lot during that time, learned it was the best job I ever had, best place I ever worked. Um, no offense to the other places. Um, but it was the right kind of, of organization. It was right a size. Yeah. yeah. And until it wasn't. And then I got laid off and went to a, a non, another, went to a nonprofit and was working there for a while when I got a call out of the blue from somebody I was in a leadership development program that said, hey, there's this, and she was with the Boeing company. She says, hey, we've had this job. We've been trying to fill forever. We can't find anybody. You'd be perfect. You should apply. I'm like, I applied because, you know, that's what this leadership group does. We, it's a, creates a network. And so next thing I know, I get this interview and like a week later, find out I got the job and was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so led their um, corporate citizenship or got yeah, their corporate citizenship outreach out here in the West 
for the defense side of the business and was there for, for about five years. And then there was this opportunity to work at a community foundation, which is more like a traditional philanthropy and became the arts program officer there and worked on a lot of programs, including transition aged youth and programs in South Los Angeles and, and really enjoyed that. But at the same time, there was some family stuff. My father was, was by that time in his, his um, early nineties and was health was deteriorating. I could see the toll it was taking on my, on my mom. And I thought, you know, LA, California will always be here, but my parents might not. So I sold my house, I quit my job wow. again. <laughs> wow. So on my way to Florida, um, unfortunately my father passed before I could actually make like the formal mm. move. And then it was, my mom was like, I don't, you don't need to move out here, I'm fine. And I'm like, well, mom, she's like, no, we made peace a long time ago with you living in Florida. I'm like, well, I didn't know you needed to make peace with it. Um, <laughs> so it became like, well, I'll go. We actually moved her to a new house and was gonna get her settled and then drive back cross country with the dogs. And um, I arrive in Florida. And as I get, as I arrived there, I find out that she had had a stroke. So um, I'm like, okay. So I ended up spending a couple, a longer time, at least two months in Florida. Um, thank God she was fine and made that trip, came back to LA and then started consulting. Knew a lot of people in the philanthropy space and the nonprofit space was doing all kinds of different work. One of my clients was the Annenberg Foundation and people don't know who they are. They were actually, Walter Annenberg was um, the owner of the, the Philadelphia Inquirer and started uh, TV Guide and a number of other period, like the Seventeen magazine and uh, a few others. I used so, to love that magazine. Yeah, <laughs> and you know they have a they have beautiful building at, at Temple and they have a school of I think communications at Penn. Mm -hmm. And they were one of my clients. And when my mom decided she wanted to move to California, I was like, oh, okay. So I have to figure out, you know, something a little bit more, you know, regular than just consulting and. They had been trying to get me to come on board. And so I went on board with them for about, I was with them total for about four or five years. Right. And then um, there was some problems during the pandemic, um, but we came out of that. And, but it made me really kind of think about what I wanted to do next. Cause as generous as the family is, I, I was just doing grant making. And this was an opportunity that came up um, to do something really special right now. Um, and yeah. I am the director of the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy, which is housed at the Japanese American National Museum here in Los Angeles. And it had been dormant for a while. It was, it was started in the, the 2000s. And there's just been this re obviously resurgence and in interest in democracy and how we address it in, this, in our society. And so I'm going to be working on programs, looking at that, but from a very particular lens of sort of how do we lean on the history of Japanese Americans and their incarceration during World War II mm. as, as evidence of how, what happens when democracy breaks down and how can we learn those lessons and apply them to other communities and what's going on in society um, and all through the lens of art, which is, you know, so core to who I am. And so, yeah, just really, really excited about what the work that we can, can do. That is really exciting. It merges so much of your whole journey, honestly. That's mm -hmm. really, really incredible. Um, so it makes me think when you were a little boy, I'm sure this wasn't the title that you were like, oh, when I grow <laughs> up, <laughs> do you, what did you want to do? When you were young, did you say, oh, when I grew up, I want to what? So when I was a little kid, I wanted to be president. Like I, I was, I was that, and anybody who went to Corpus Christi knew that I was that weird little kid in many different ways. But like, I was like, I was determined, like I, you know, I think every kid kind of says, oh, I want to be president and people think it's cute. And so they keep saying it, but I just like, I kept at it and I like, I was determined and and made no, and made no, like I had a plan and was not quiet about it. And I remember my, my aunt Jane, my dad's sister, I think when I was like 11, 
or 12 maybe, probably 11. For Christmas, she gave me this gift and I had no, I, I had never seen this, this, it was a game and I had never seen it advertised anywhere. I never saw, I don't know how she found it. But as we would say today, I never, I've never felt so seen in my life. Oh, oh. <laughs> the, the game was called Landslide. And it was a game for um, ages like nine and up, two to four players. And it, the basis of the game was to teach the electoral college process. So you had to run presidential campaigns. Oh <laughs> my <try>. gosh. <laughs> And, you know, back then, nobody cared about, like, even me, who wanted to be president, really didn't know about the electoral college, because it never yeah. really made a difference back then, like, not the way it is today. Yeah. And so, and I would play that game all the time. And, and you know who really loved to play it with me? Who? Nobody, because who wants to play the game with a little you know what my sister would have played that game it's too bad you didn't know her she would have played that game with you jim <laughs> i needed some weird kids around me um and so you know and and i may i was not quiet about it and and until somebody you know a couple of my friends and they were friends told me i couldn't be president and i said why not and they said well you're not you're not American. And I'm like, what? But I am American. And they're like, no, you're Filipino. And I'm like, well, my mom's Filipino, but we were born in the same hospital. Like you, right? No, you're not white. And, wow. and I, and I really like, I say that they were, they were friends. And I think they were really just looking out for me. Like, you're not, this isn't going to go anywhere for you. Because remember when we were kids, like there was, nobody in right. in the highest halls of government was anything but a white man you're right you know and very few women I, you know yeah ironically like the women that i remember are, are women like shirley chisholm and and barbara jordan like a black african-american women like you know they were the ones that were leading the way and and i really didn't believe them at first and and so when you know, I kind of put that away. I probably went home and rage played landslide for a few hours <laughs> to get it out of the system. And then, wow. it, but it planted the seed of like doubt yeah. that just kind of grew over time. And, yeah. and without any kind of, you know, uh, without anybody really to talk to about it or to help me process that, I kind of just was like, okay, well, I guess not only is the presidency not for me, but that kind of political public life is not something that is going to be afforded to somebody like me. So I kind wow. of ended up giving that up, which is why when I come back to this work, I find that it's so important on that personal level, because I don't want any weird kids somewhere, anyone, no matter who they are, to ever feel like they can't be whatever. Well, I mean, you've just illuminated why representation matters, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, it, it's, it's really true, whether you're talking about, you're talking about the highest, the highest, um, the highest positions in the land or the, um, even if you're talking about princesses, like, honestly, like my girls, when they were little, I was always like, there has to be a this princess and a that princess. And yeah, I know that maybe people are, are thinking you shouldn't even show them princesses, but that's what they wanted. And, you know, I always wanted um, every kind of princess. I mean, I even wanted a princess to wear glasses, you know, like I just think kids need to see themselves. They really do need to see themselves. And we all have to kind of remember that um, because I think that story is probably true on many, many levels. I mean, not many people maybe wanted to be president and even less played landslide. <laughs> it was not one of Parker Brothers' most successful games that I found out later. I love, you should like get it, have it in your house I've, somewhere. I've looked at it on, yeah. I've, I've searched for it online and eBay and it exists, it definitely exists. Yeah, yeah. I had something like that when I was in fifth grade that really meant a lot to me. And I'm always like searching for it, you know, it's, mm -hmm. but that's even interesting. 
like the role of that in your life, that little game and that aunt. I mean, that's just an interesting story on many, many levels to me. I mean, I think there was, you know, and this is, I think, mixed mixed kids have this duality that they have yeah. to kind of reconcile, which is very, very difficult. Um, and so, you know, there were, like I said, most of the people in my life were wonderful, supportive, caring, didn't, and yeah. we can come back to that, didn't see color, which is an issue yeah. in and of itself, but who were accepting of it. And then you had this other group of people that weren't and, and trying to navigate all of that. Right. Um, and, and the 20% affects the 80% too. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, you know, the other thing is that you reference something that I see my kids dealing with because you said, you know, people will say to me, well, I didn't know you were Filipino. And because then there's that element, which I think is a whole other thing that uh, kids of mixed ethnicities or race have in common because they feel kind of like, well, am I enough of this and enough of this? I, my one daughter, you know, at first when she went to college and they said, oh, you can be part of this Latin organiza organization. She was like, oh, am I allowed? You know, it's really, I think that is an interesting thing where, mm -hmm. who are you? Are you what you look like? Are you what you know you are? Are you the food you eat? You know, who are you? And you're, a, you know, a lot of things make us us. Yeah. But it's the duality that I think most people struggle with because especially today you have you have to pick you're either black or white red or blue you know yeah. there's no there's no understanding of like you can hold two very different conflicting uh, ideas at the same time you can yes. hold them and, and so you know when people when I talk about my my Filipino side people there are people that that criticize me because they're like well you're half white so you know why aren't you this or that I'm like because that's not what this conversation's about and right. I can do both and I can I understand the criticisms of both I, it's not I can love both sides and still you know have issues with both sides um, right I, yeah. you know we don't love ambiguity I was just in another conversation on the, another podcast um, and we talked about people are very complicated and we hold multiple ideas and essences and identities within our, within ourselves. And, you know, but I think that, and I don't know if this is an American trait or if this is just a human trait, we do not deal well with gray, with ambiguity, with, with complexity. We do want everything, even every feeling. And most of our feelings are very, uh, multifaceted mm -hmm. so it's not only what you're dealing with as it relates to you and people looking at you and seeing you you're also carrying the way people see your mom that mm -hmm. lives with you you know and I, I I have to assume that and I I do assume that only based upon my own kids and how they're carrying how they see people react maybe to their dad mm -hmm. so sometimes you're carrying something that isn't eat that is maybe something that you've kind of watched or assimilated. So there's all sorts of facets to it. And I think it's a really important conversation as I think most conversations are important. And even when you talk about the criticism, I feel like we are probably going to get it wrong often when we discuss anything of import because there's so much weight to it. People, mm -hmm. we put so much into these feelings of identity. You can see how people are so upset, you know, that somebody might say they're non-binary. People are like, they're out of their minds. Their heads are exploding mm -hmm. off their necks because they're, they can't understand it. It's exactly why they can't understand it. And that mm -hmm. makes people nuts. And you don't have to understand it either. Like. <laughs> Right. Give yourself a break. You don't have to understand. I'm not asking you to understand it. Like, right. But, right. Yeah. Although I'm going to just say, I think the world would be better if we tried to understand one another, you know? Um, where Jim, you know, we both went 
through 12 years of Catholic school, mm -hmm. where does faith, like, where does that fit into your life? Does it have a place in your life? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm very grateful for as much as I said, I didn't want <laughs> anymore. Yeah. I was very grateful for, for that education because I think it actually helps me understand Catholicism in in a way that some people don't, even Catholics don't. Um, and and I still remember like classes. Of, I, did you have Father Thiers? I did have Father Thiers. <laughs> as much as he was a pain in the neck, like I appreciated that that class and it and and in looking at other religions helped me understand my religion better. Um, yeah. But I do. I mean, I have problems with the church and the way it behaves and the way people within the church behave um, but I don't think that that has to affect my own faith or my belief or what I believe um, and much of what I believe is comes from Catholicism um, mm -hmm. but what a lot of people believe in their of their Catholicism is I think is not really Catholicism I think I think the church has gotten away in some cases has gotten away from what really the, the true message is yeah, I mean, and I remember my father saying to me when I was young, um, he said one time, you know, speaking about women in the Catholic Church, and he said, you know, women are second class citizens in the Catholic Church. And he said, just be aware that people never willingly hand over power. So if women want power, they're going to have to take it. That's just the way it is in life. If you want power, nobody's going to say, oh my gosh, I just realized we have too much. Here you go. Mm -hmm. So, and and he kind of explained, you know, at that time, um, all religions, and of course, not just the Catholic, all of this, we're, we're all these human beings. And there are many things that go into a lot of these, quote, rules or dogmas and whatever so but it's always fascinating to me I'm always interested because I did I, I let the one thing that I really love about attending Catholic school for me I love the ability to think big and to to take these larger life themes you know you walk in in first grade and you're talking about that you know, you're talking about death and life and why and purpose mm -hmm. and that has created something within me that I, I do love, or maybe it was already there. I don't know. <laughs> and ritual is very important, especially when you're a child and having, you know, as much as, you know, at this time of year, we would be going to stations of the cross. On every yep. Talk about like, whoa, oh. when you really think about what, <laughs> what's going on in the, those scenes, it's like, oh my God, how we were not traumatized as young children. Um, you know, that um, is amazing. Um, yep. But that whole idea of ritual, and I think ground, you know, certainly grounded my childhood in, in a way that I think was very important. Yeah, I never thought about that, but I think you're right. And, you know, it's funny you said about what was really going on. Well, my daughter, it, my youngest is actually going through confirmation. And she said, how did you pick your saint? Now I picked, we got confirmed when I was younger, it was in fifth grade. So we did it younger, but I was reading to her about my saint and I was like, wow, this is gory. <laughs> and I think that's what made me pick it, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what a tale she has to tell. <laughs> mm -hmm. So crazy. Well, what inspires you today? Where do you seek inspiration? Um, I seek it in in the people that I see that are doing incredible work. Um, there's so many, you know, and that's one of the, I think the blessings of, of living out here in California um, is that there are so many people from different cultures, different backgrounds um, who, you know, have figured out a way to work together and it doesn't always work. It's not always successful, but people come together um, for a purpose, for a cause, for one another. And I think that that's, that's sorely missing in the rest of, of society today, because it's very much, um, 
you know, sort of me centric or my group centric instead of um, really looking at how we all fit together. And I do feel like we all, you know, we talk a lot about obviously about democracy at the Democracy Center. And, uh, you know, we wanna kind of approach it from a different aspect that's very art centered, but also, you know, thinking about it in different ways and maybe a little bit more philosophical ways. And I think, you know, democracy started out as this idea of like rule of the people or people power. But, you know, the people that created it really were only talking about, you know, men. So it was, if you had land or if you had a penis or if you had both, then you, you got to say. You're good. But we've, you know, we were not, we're not living 2,000, 3,000 years ago. This is today and it's a much different society and we need to step up. And we, the idea of, of moving people together is what I think democracy is. It's not about majority rules, although that's what we've come to think about. It is really moving everyone so that everyone succeeds and we're leaving too many people behind in this fight for, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, they're not welcome here. They didn't come here the right way. It, it's all crap. Um, if we have, if we really believe in democracy, everyone has a say. Now we can dictate, well, you know, some people have a right to vote based on their age, based on, you know, their residency status, whatever. But even people who come here, and I hate when people talk about coming here undocumented or illegal, because that's all just a construct. Because my it mother, is. my mother, this is in our lifetime was not allowed to immigrate to this country because of racist immigration policies. She had to keep coming back and forth, back and forth under a right. guest visa. It was until 1965. And so this idea of like, you know. Oh, if, and if, Jim, by the way, you know, I've heard people say, well, they should have got done what my ancestors did. And I think, you know, they got on a boat. You know, if you're talking about the 1600s or 1700s, you know, they got on a a boat and came over. They proved they didn't. They weren't sick. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, there were no visas. There were no right anything like that, except for you know there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, and there you know the wide swaths of the world, Asia and Africa, were not allowed to to immigrate to the U.S. If you could come some way, you could come as a guest worker, or if you were able to immigrate, you could not even become a citizen. You could stay. We'll let you stay, but we're not going to give you any of the rights wow. of citizenship. Um, so I forget where this was going, but, um, we have to stop about democracy up. and, and yeah. 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 And so how do, how do we do that? And how do we get to a point? And this is something that I do not have an answer for. And I really want to find that answer is like, how do I reach out to somebody across the aisle, across, you know, uh, the political divide that doesn't want me here? Like, how do I how do I reconcile that in order to move forward with them? Um, and so I think that's some of the things that we want to explore. Um, I know you have had a chance to, to meet my friend Omar. Yeah. Uh, in the Gratitude Blooming podcast. And, yes. and I think we're going to, we're hoping to do, start doing those in front of a live audience. Oh, great. And, and like have these conversations because I think that's some of the stuff that we need to work on. And so I find inspiration from, from from him, from you, for you, because I don't know if people realize like what you do is really hard. Like this is not oh. like the consistency, the like, you know, finding people that it, it, it's a lot of work. And it's, you know, I my hat's off to you because I thank I'm you inspired by what you're doing. Cause you're you just were like, I'm gonna do this. Yeah. You know, thank you. And that's I mean, back at you because it takes people willing to share to share their journey and their story and their vulnerabilities and their hopes and their dreams and part of it is this conversation that you're talking about I really do feel that I've learned you can't just say well you're bad and that's wrong you're a jerk <laughs> that does not change anyone apparently Jim <laughs> it makes me feel better sometimes <laughs> <laughs> That's the but but I'm I'm learning that's not the way. So you know if we all can um converse maybe and I don't know the answer. I think what you ask is a great question. 
just so it leads me to the whole magic wand question that so many of us ask and I'm no exception. If I handed you a magic wand right now and said, okay, quickly, you can make one change in the world, what would it be? Um, in a very unphilosophical way, I would say like getting rid of social media algorithms. Oh, yeah. Because that's really what I think, and, and there's evidence of this, in, you know, in documentaries and reports. Um, there's the Nobel laureate, the Peace Prize winner from last year, it was a, a journalist from the Philippines, Filipino-American, I believe, but um, was working in the Philippines, Maria Reza, won the Nobel Peace Prize because she was jailed um, because she, you know, was recognizing what was happening in the Philippines. The Philippines has like something like 95% Facebook um, uh, penetration. And so disinformation was was just, you know, being wow. in. And she's been on TV and she talks in a book she has that this is, the, the Philippines was the test case for America because this is what's happening here is, you know, we as creatures, there's, you know, a, a, a philosophical um, uh, basis to this of, you know, why we're curious, why we seek out information, why we look you know, have a curiosity about what, what other people are doing because we want to know what the boundaries are. And so mm -hmm. when we see boundaries pushed further out, and this is what scares a lot of people on both sides, is then we're more comfortable moving ourselves out. But when that barrier is moved out in a very fake, made up, um, intentionally made up way, it's pushing people further out into something that really never existed before. And, you know, I think we need, we need to grapple with that and we need to grapple with, because if you remember like before Facebook, there was like MySpace and Friendster and they were like happy place. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Facebook started out as a happy place. And yes, then, but the it was. only way, the reason why Facebook survived was because it was able to monetize um, it's it's members in a way that that Friendster and, and MySpace weren't. Um, so is so because it made money, or you know, because it was able to capture data and drive information to people in ways that would trigger them one way or another to get those constant views. Yes. Um, that's where we are today. Well, I got to tell you, I could keep talking to you because that that just leads me to a lot of other thoughts, but. Um, I don't have great editing skills, Jim, so I can't keep yeah. talking to you. <laughs> you can invite me back six months from now and see if I, I'm still doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I would love to, regardless of what you're doing, I would love to invite you back six months from now because that kind of branches off into so many um, other conversations that we could, we could have. But mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you for your support, for um, okay. what you're doing in the world and for speaking your truth and for you know you, you your career has been one of service ultimately and mm -hmm. i recognize and appreciate that so thank and thank you for coming on the soulful connections oh, podcast my pleasure i like i said i'm so like enamored with with what you're doing and and what it take, yeah. takes to do this so whatever i can do to support i'm happy thank you Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider giving it a great rating and following all the things you do when you like a podcast. Thank you to William Aronson for writing, producing, recording the Soulful Connections theme song. And once again, thank you for listening. I hope you keep tuning in.